Turn with me tonight in your Bible to the book of Second Peter. Second Peter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. We're in chapter one. remember some time back we had a quite a long series of expository sermons on first Peter and of course it took us quite a long time to get through the five chapters and sometimes I've thought about having another study in second Peter because it's also a tremendous letter but maybe sometime in the future according to the will of God but tonight I just want to read a portion from chapter 1. And we're going to read from verse 1. So it's 2 Peter chapter 1 and we'll read down to verse 12. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Reading of course from the authorized verse. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Saviour Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, get diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Amen. We know the Lord has stamped his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text tonight is taken from 2 Peter chapter 1 and the verse 4. And my theme this evening is to consider the precious promises of God. Listen to God's word. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now for some weeks we've been thinking about the precious things of God. And I have told you in the past that the word precious 
is used 72 times in the Bible. And of course, that's a lot of references. 72 references to the word precious. And remember, the word precious means something that's highly esteemed, something that's of great value, uh, something that's treasured, uh, something that's, that's worth a lot. And if you think of it, 72 references to the word precious, we could ask the Lord if we could personify him tonight in human form before our face and say to him, Lord, what things are precious to you? Well, the Lord could speak to us in a public fashion and he could point us to these 72 references. He could take us on a spiritual journey one by one and open up the scriptures like he did with the two on the road to Emmaus and say, well, these are the things that are precious to me. Remember the precious thoughts of God over there in the book of the Psalms, Psalm 139, how precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God, how great is the sum of them? What about the precious word of God? Do we read in 1 Samuel 3 and 1, and the word of God was precious in those days? Meaning rare? And what a treasure the word of God is. A, a, a word in our own mother tongue. A, a word that we can read privately and publicly. We could literally say, I have a word from God for you. You see, God speaks to us out of his word. His word is quick, it's a living word, it's powerful, and of course it's sharper than any two-edged sword. We could also talk tonight about the precious blood of Christ, and we preached in this theme last Lord's Day evening, and over there in 1 Peter chapter 1, and in the verse 18, we read, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, the doctrine of the precious blood lies at the very heart of the gospel. We're saved on the ground of the blood sacrifice of Christ. Didn't Paul say in Romans chapter 5 and verse 9 that we're justified by the blood? That's the ground of our justification. Ephesians 1 and 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We, we pray in the ground of the blood, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We don't come in our name, but we come pleading the merits of the precious shed blood. Do you know something else? We even serve God in light of the ground of the blood sacrifice of Christ. I was thinking about this just last night uh, down in Roslyn Street. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, the blood in the veins of the Lord Jesus, was no ordinary blood. It's the blood of the God-man. I believe the blood in the veins of Christ was sinless blood. It was incorruptible. And we're not redeemed by corruptible things. We're not even redeemed by silver and gold. But we're redeemed by something even more precious and wonderful than that. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. In other words, it's worthy of the highest esteem. 
It's something to be highly prized, something to be treasured. We preached some weeks ago about precious faith. Not only is Christ precious, and in fact, if we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, it's three times the word precious is used in the context of Christ. He is precious unto you, therefore believe he is precious. But so also is our faith in him. And in the ground of the merits of the blood of Christ, we come and lay hold upon him by faith. And as we lay hold upon him by faith, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us the moment we receive him as Lord and Saviour. And, and our unrighteousness, of course, has, has been imputed to him. True faith is a gift. It's a gift we have obtained <laughs> freely. It's given by God himself. And the object, of course, of true faith is Christ. You've got to think of how it operates. You've got to think of the outworking of faith. And, of course, Peter deals with that here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5, right through to 8. Adding to our saving faith. But I want you to think tonight of something else that's precious. And it's the promises of God. I want to tell you tonight that the promises of God are also very precious. To be highly esteemed. To, to, to be highly valued. To be greatly treasured. Look with me at verse 4. Let's read it together. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now there are seven things tonight that I want to tell you about God's promises. I want you to think first of all of the counting of God's promises. Look at the text whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Notice it's plural, not singular. It's not that God has just given us one promise. That would have been tremendous in itself. But God has given us lots of promises. God has given us loads of promises. How many? Herbert Lockyer in his book, all the promises of God in the Bible suggests, and this is what I hold to, 7,300. It was the late Dr. Paisley that told me that one of the Puritans suggested that if we add in to that every conditional thing that God has said, this do and ye shall live, for example, there could be as many as 30,000 promises in the Bible. Well, well, whether it's 7,300 or 30,000, I want to tell you that there's lots. There's more than one. There's loads of promises in the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And you know what? And here's the encouragement. Every Christian who's born again of the Spirit and washed in the blood can come pleading the promise of God in prayer. And he can come saying, Heavenly Father, Thou hast said in Thy Word. And, and thy word says that you'll do certain things. And Lord, you've spoken, and I believe, and I'm asking you, Lord, now to perform. You see, the Bible, folks, is fresh. It's up to date. The Bible's more relevant than even the morning news. And the Bible, of course, is for every situation and every circumstance in life. We've already told you the Bible's alive. 
It's, it's a powerful word, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, in the past, I've been told by certain individuals that will not be named, such and such a promise, well, that's not addressed to you, David. That's not for your consumption. And, of course, I readily accept that there's loads of things in the Bible, and when we think about their immediate context and think about their life situation in which they were spoken uh, by the prophets under the inspiration of God, that that word has a primary application to the context. But I want to tell you more than that. It also has a personal, practical application for every Christian in the here and now. Look at the text. Whereby are given unto us. Now, they underline the word us. Peter was writing to first century Christians who were suffering for their faith. He was writing to encourage them. And he, he encouraged them by getting their eyes on Christ who is precious, getting their eyes on the precious blood, getting their eyes on their precious faith, getting their eyes on the precious trials. But he wanted to tell them, get your eyes on the precious promises, because those promises are for us. And there's many of them. And they're for the here and now. And they're for all the saints in every age, for every situation, in every circumstance. We, we get asked the question, well, if they're given unto us, well, where are they located? We want to go and look at them. And of course, the, the answer for the Christian in Peter's day was the Old Testament scriptures. If you look up there, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and verse 20. Here's a verse you should underline in your Bible. Link it up with this verse in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. The word yea means yes. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20. Let me repeat it again. For all the promises of God in him. In him means in Jesus Christ. Are yea, that means yes. And in him, amen. That means so shall it be. Lord, let it stand in thy sight. You see, I believe tonight that in every promise, God will not fail to fulfill all his good work. The Bible encourages us to have faith in God. So think tonight of the counting of God's promises. There's loads of them. There's lots of them in the Bible. And they're for us to lay hold upon by faith. And God will not fail to fulfill his word. For all the promises of God in him are yea and amen. I want you to think secondly of the character of God's promises. Notice the words exceeding great and precious. This is not just a promise. Or this is not just promises. He doesn't say whereby God hath given to us promises. Well, that would be true. But he says something far greater than that. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. In other words, he describes them as exceeding great and precious it was one of the old Puritans that talked about that God's promises are the jewellery of the Bible that adorn the life of the child of God. Now, if I make a promise to you that when I see you in the street or the shop, I'm going to nod at you. 
I'm going to smile each time I see you. You could say, well, well that's okay. That, that's a general promise and he probably will do that each time he passes me by. Nod and smile. But suppose I make a promise to you that every time our paths cross, even if it's on a daily basis or two or three times daily, I'm going to give you a hundred pounds. You'd want to know where I'm located every hour of every day. You'd want to pass me by. Because if I made a promise to give you a hundred pounds, then I would have to keep it. But of course I could make a promise and not be able to keep it. I could say, well, I promised to meet you at noontime down in the city hall tomorrow. But there could be a car accident on the Saintfield Road. There could be a traffic jam somewhere. Or, or I could suddenly be sick. Or there could be an incident that, that uh, occurs that demands my attention. And while I may have the best of intentions, circumstances could arise that prevent me from fulfilling what I said. I could even go further and say, well, I'd promise to give you a million pounds and I might be willing and would love to. But not able to. Why? Because the reality is I don't have that sort of money in the bank. I, I wish I had. We wouldn't have any debt in the building program. But I don't. And you see, there's one thing to, to want to do something. But the reality is that while we want to do something, we can't. Because we have not the means or the power or the ability to fulfill it. But man's promises are unlike God's promises. Because God's promises are not just a promise. They're exceeding great and precious. Why? Because when God makes a promise, he is saying, I'm willing to do this for you. And I am able. I've got the ability. I've got the power to fulfill it. So God's promise is always backed by his omnipotence. It's backed by his omniscience. He knows all things. It's backed by his wisdom. It's backed by his grace, his love, and its truth. Let me tell you a little story. Martin Luther, we just celebrated Reformation 500, you know that often he was full of doubt and fear. He would lie in bed at night and think he's going to be murdered in his bed. He was awful plagued with doubt and had terrible dreams. And he was often afraid for his life. And when he left the home, of course, he'd be looking over his shoulder. And if someone come and frightened him, he'd be very easily startled. And especially when he was outside the vicinity of Wittenberg in Germany, he remember was under threat of death from the Roman authorities. Do you know what his favourite passage was? And we learned this down in the martyrs. I was actually struck by, by, by this. At that time we went on the a little exhibition tour there. It wasn't Romans 1.17. It wasn't even Psalm 46. Because if you'd have asked me in the room, if Peter Lund had said, right, Irvin McGlogan, what's Martin Luther's favourite passage? I would have said one of those two. But you know what it wasn't? You know what he said? It was Psalm 118, verse 17. And this was the promise that God given to him. I shall not die, but live. And declare the works of the Lord. In other words, I'm not going to be murdered in the bed. I'm not going to be murdered in Wittenberg. I'm, I'm not going to be murdered at all. I shall live and not die. And declare the works of the Lord. One of our ministers received a call to a new church. He was out in America. He was out there preaching. And of course, he was full of doubt and fear. And he wasn't sure if this was the will of God. And he thought, you know, I, I'll never be able to stick it. They're not 
Ulster people. They're not like the free Presbyterians back at home. And of course his mind was made up, you know, I don't think I'm going to accept this at all. And of course he phoned his wife and he had a wee chat with her. And he was going to tell her. And as he phoned her, she said to him, Stephen, I've got a word for you. I've been praying for you this morning. And, and this just literally jumped out of the Bible at me. And, and this was the word. I will go in the strength of the Lord. Stephen, your fears are unfounded. And you know, he wrote into his Bible two letters, LV. That stands for Lehigh Valley. I asked him, well, what does that mean, LV? Lehigh Valley. Shows you my ignorance. 1998. And if you were talking to him tonight on the telephone and said, well, you're still there. What's keeping you there? And here's the answer. I've got a promise from God. I will go in the strength of the Lord. And I often think of what the psalmist said. Remember thy word unto thy servant. Thy word that has caused me to hope. <laughs> what is it that causes to hope? It's the word of God. The character of God's promises. They're exceeding great and precious. Why? Because God is speaking. A God who is willing to do what he said. And a God who is able to fulfill it. Unlike us. Notice thirdly, and I, I look at the clock here, the centrality of God's promise. We're going to ask the question, whose promises are there? Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises? Who gave the promises? Well, here's the answer. Simple answer, young people. Children. They're God's promises. We're thinking tonight about the precious promises of God. One of the things that's revealed in the Bible. And they're God's promises. And we can count God's promises. And we can think of the character. But think about the centrality of God's promises. The promises are really a message or a word from God who cannot lie. As I've already said, people can make promises. They can have the best intentions in the world to keep them. And not be able to keep them. And of course we live in a day when there's a great lack of integrity. Uh, a man's word can oftentimes no longer be his bond. A great lack of ability. Men could say well I have a willingness to do this. But lack the ability to fulfill it. Circumstances and situations can arise. Could we make it impossible for us to keep his word. But the promises of God I want to tell you tonight. They're sure and certain of fulfillment. Why? It's the promise of one who is sinless. One who cannot lie. And of course, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 um, gives us that uh, information. And it's tremendous whenever we think of the, the uh, word of God in Titus. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Isn't that tremendous? Lord, you have promised us. Lord, you won't go back on your word. Lord, you'll perform it. You see, the promises are tied in to the sinlessness of God. He's not able to tell a lie. The promises are tied in to the sovereignty of God. God is in absolute sovereign control. And God says, my counsel shall stand. And of course, God will fulfill his word. You see, you and I can say, well, I promise to do this and that. I could promise and pledge when I'm going to defend the gospel. 
I get promise and pledge I'm going to declare the gospel. I, I get pledge and promise, you know, I'm not going to deny Christ. But it's easy to say we're going to do something or not going to do it. And yet we don't know our hearts. We don't know our own proneness to our own human sinfulness. We don't know our shortcomings and our imperfections. Think of Peter. Peter opened his big mouth one day. Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. And Peter says, Lord, you're not. I'm not going to deny you. Lord, I'm willing to die with you. What did Jesus say? Peter, before the cock crows three times, you'll have denied me thrice. And I'm sure he had the best of intentions. Me? I'm your best supporter, Lord. I'm your right-hand man. I'm not going to deny you. But of course, that's exactly what he did. And I think what's amazing, not that Peter denied the Lord, because we're all prone to human sinfulness and imperfection. But the amazing thing is, the Lord didn't deny or denounce Peter. He didn't turn his back on him. And when Jesus came out of the judgment hall, Peter was there warming his hands at the fire. And the Bible tells us, Jesus looked. And it was that look that broke his heart. There's no lack of willingness on God's part. There's no lack of power and ability on God's part. Because it's tied into his character. God is sinless. He cannot lie. God is sovereign. He's in absolute control. Therefore, his word is sure and certain of fulfillment. His word is his bond. I want you to think fourthly and quickly. The certainty of God's promises. See, God's promises tonight are very broad in scope. They cover a wide range of things and all kinds of situation and circumstance. And of course, I want to tell you tonight, there's not a situation, a circumstance that arises, there's not a promise to cover it. You think tonight of pardon. Maybe you're here tonight, you're not saved, your sins are not forgiven. And you would love to know with assurance that your sins are forgiven. Well, is there a message from God for you in the Bible? There is. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And of course, we're all born sinners. We all need to be saved. And on the strength of God's word, we can go to him for pardon. We can ask him for forgiveness. I want you to think tonight of being in a painful situation. Remember what we read in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 45. And in the verse 2, when thou passest through the waters, I'll be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. You see, even in the midst of that which causes us fear and doubt and alarm, the Lord says, you don't need to be afraid. That will not overcome you because I'm with you in the midst of that. Think of our plans. Lord, I don't know what to do. Situation that arises where we need light and we need guidance. And the Lord comes. What's your will about this, Lord? And he comes. I'll teach thee and instruct thee in the way in which thou shalt go. I will counsel thee with mine eye. What about his presence? Doesn't he say, Matthew 28 and 20, Lo, I'm with you always. Was not David Livingston's favorite text out in Africa in a straw bed? And he, yet he had that text that was Livingston's text that he lived by. What sustained them in Africa? Lo, I am with you always. It was the assurance of the Lord's presence. In fact, Livingston said, it's the word of a gentleman. Hebrews 13 and 5, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be fretful. You don't have to worry about the future. Because his presence is with you. It's guaranteed. 
think of the little story I told in the old people's home this afternoon about footprints. Having a dream and dreaming that they were walking in the seashore and there was two sets of footprints as they walked along the sand at the edge of the sea and then all of a sudden it merged into one and the individual having the dream was fearful and said, Lord, why did you leave me? Why did you abandon me? You, you, you said that you wouldn't. And the Lord said, I didn't leave you, child. I'm carrying you. And of course, that's what the Lord does. Think of his power. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Think of his provision. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And of course, if he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, we can come and lay the need before the Lord. If he owns the silver and the gold and the mines belong to him, even for our building work, even for what we need to get over the line and get the building open, we can bring that to the Lord and we can cry, Lord, continue to touch hearts and answer prayer and meet the need. He's Jehovah Jireh. The need for these seats to be filled up on a Sunday night as well as a Sunday morning. The need for souls to be saved. Whatever the need is, we can, we can bring it to the Lord on the strength of his promise. Maybe you're here tonight and you need peace. Your, your mind's in turmoil. Your heart's in upheaval. You don't know what to do. Lord Jesus stands beside you and this is what he whispers. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, there's the certainty of God's promises. They're sure of fulfillment in the broad scope in which they've been given. So whether it's pardon or pain or plans or presence or power or provision or peace or whatever else it is, God has a word for us that we can lay hold upon. Think also tonight of the comfort of God's promises. Who's going to comfort you when you're in distress? Doesn't Romans 8 and 28 say, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them are the called according to his purpose. We said this morning that trials and troubles are awful. And I want to tell you they are. And I understand your pain and your heartache. Pain and suffering's real. And it's not easy to cope, especially if you have a loved one who's not well. And it's not easy to continue and of course when things happen and we don't know why they've happened and, 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 and light is hidden from us and, 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 and like Paul, we, we've got what we describe as a thorn in the flesh and would love God to take it away and he's not answering that prayer and he says something different and what does he say? My grace is sufficient for you. See, when we're in distress, don't know what to do. No light. Let's hold on to that word. And let's ask the Lord even to give us grace just to hold on. What about comfort and death? Doesn't the Bible say in Psalm 116, verse 15, which is a lovely verse, worthy of a sermon in itself, precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of his saints. It was John Wesley that talked about the old Methodist dying well. What did he mean? Dying in pain and agony? Dying in, in much affliction? They died in Christ. Blessed are the dead. Would you die in the Lord? When you're in discouragement, and I want to tell you, preachers get discouraged. They get discouraged when there's a poor turnout. They get discouraged when they preach and nothing seems to happen. Sometimes preachers get weary, feel like quitting. 
How, how do we carry on? But when I think of Brother Stephen Hamilton out there in Lehigh Valley from 1998 and many other trying situations within our own denomination, how do you carry on? It's Sunday in, Sunday out, and you're faithful to your post in your seat. Here's the answer, the word of God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's not empty. It's not without purpose. That's how we cope. I was reading on Friday night in the prayer meeting, whenever we come from Cross Gar, the brethren were in pray, praying, and um, straight away as I sat down, those words came into my head. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. Listen to this. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. And of course, you see, God in our discouragements, in our doubt, in our distress, no matter what we face, he has a word for us. Now, one final thing. We'll, we'll, I have a seventh point, but we'll leave it because um, it, it might take too long to explain. So we'll, we'll come back to this. I want you to think of the counsel of God's promise. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Well, why does he give us these promises? What are they for? They're to be believed. That's the simple answer. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. And is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God's word is to be laid hold of. It's to be laid hold by faith. You see, it's one thing to say, well, the Lord has given us loads of precious promises in the Bible. And they're all true. Are, are, is it God's word? Has God spoken? Is God willing and able to do this for us? Oh yes, we believe that. But it's easy to say that without actually laying hold on the promise for yourself. I think of those words of um, Ehud to Eglon. I, I've gotten a word from God for you. And every time I think of the promise, I, I think of God speaking personally to me. And by faith, I can hold on to that word. Let me close with this illustration. There's a woman in France, and she was a very poor woman. She was living in poverty. She had little food. She had little clothes in her bag. She was living in a little shack, and there had no heating, of course, in, in those days. And there wasn't much by way of coal or sticks or anything like that. And there was a visitor came to the house, a neighbouring town, and knew this woman and knew of her need, and out of compassion, always brought her a little bread and milk and a little bit of meat if that was possible and did his best to encourage this poor woman. She was a widow woman. Her husband had died and her children had died and very, very sad. But you know what he noticed in the little shack? One day he was there and he just was looking round and he noticed a thousand franc note. Now, I've never seen a thousand franc note, so I don't really know what francs are. They have the euro now, but this was back when France had the franc. Way back in the 19th century, thousand franc note on a, on a frame in the wall. Considerable amount of money then, a great value. 
And he thought this poor woman, and she's living in poverty, with hardly a clothes on her back and little food in her belly and no heat for her, 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 her dwelling. And there's money and it's not been used. That's exactly the picture. God has given us thousands of promises. And they're not being used the way they should. They're not being laid hold of by faith. They're not being believed. You think about Christ's promise for salvation. Eternal life. In hope of eternal life which God it cannot lie, hath promised before the world began. John 3 and 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You, you can have everlasting life today. You can have salvation if you step out on the promise. Think about Christ in the second coming. There were mockers in Peter's day that asked, Where is the promise of his coming? And what was Peter's response? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus is coming back. It'll be in his time. And of course, the reason why he hasn't come is given space for repentance to men and women upon this earth, that they might believe before he comes. Because when he comes, he'd come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. What about Christ's promise about sanctification? And of course, that's what the latter part of this verse deals with. And we'll leave that to a separate subject. The counsel of God's promise is this. It's got to be believed. It's got to be laid hold upon. And I would encourage you tonight, if you're here and not saved, lay hold of the promise. If you're worried about the future, then lay hold of the promise. If you're facing something that's difficult, Lay hold on the promise by faith. Use the promises to the glory of God.